humans, you know, really aren't meant to live in boxes, you know, and I thought about that for a second, you know, it was just kind of an off the cuff remark, you know, but I thought, well, you know what, you know, you live in a box, you go to work in a box for, for most people. And, um, you know, humans really aren't wired up for that. I really don't, I don't believe so. And I, I think there's just so much more uh, to offer for our mental health, our physical health, to be outside, fresh air, roaming in, in wild places. And I think that's where, where humans really, really thrive. I don't know who you are, but welcome to the Irish Photography Podcast. Sit back, relax, and listen about cameras, gear, settings, stories, and all things photography. Join Darren on Ireland's Best Photography Podcast. Let's go. You're very welcome to episode 146 of the Irish Photography Podcast. My name is Darren, I'm your host this evening, and I'm joined by somebody whose name I first came across when I had another guest on the podcast, and I didn't believe that it was real. I didn't believe that he existed, but he does, and I'm delighted to have him on the podcast. So welcome to the Irish Photography Podcast, Dusty Doddridge. How are you getting on, man? Man, I'm, I'm doing great. Just back from a fantastic trip to Iceland, uh, always wild and, and woolly as, as ever, uh, and getting ready to head back out in less than a week for our fall oh. uh, workshop circuit. So I'm kind of in between trips, but uh, glad to be home for a few days and uh, appreciate the opportunity to join you on the podcast. Well, thanks for coming on, man. You know, I'm really excited to hear your story and I'm really excited to kind of learn about some recent trips as well, because as you said, you know, you're just back there from Iceland and you went with an Irishman. So I'm sure you had a great, great trip. But even before we get into all of that, Dusty, so can you tell people who is Dusty Doddridge. I'm a landscape photographer based here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my wife and I have been here in Middle Tennessee for about 30 years now. We absolutely love it here. Uh, I'm a native Tennessean, which uh, in Nashville is kind of rare these days. Over okay. the past 10 years, people have moved from all over the world, all over the U.S. to Nashville. So it's a uh, it's a very vibrant city. Uh, it's a city full of diversity now. Uh, and so we've just uh, found a, a wonderful home here. Uh, I started doing photography about 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, during some backpacking and hiking. And you know, like a lot of people doing landscape photography, you're, you're out in these really amazing places and you just cannot resist, you know, taking some photos and trying to capture some element of that experience. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. uh, that's how I got my start and then just kind of got hooked on photography from there. You know, you start to want to learn more about the craft. You kind of want to get into the creative side, the expressive side of photography. And so this was in the good old days of 35 millimeter film. Nice. I graduated up to uh, Velvia and Provia slide film, you know, with a grand total of probably four and a half stops of, of dynamic range. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, photography was much more challenging in a lot of ways, uh, back in those days, but I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to have some roots, you know, in the film world before transitioning over to digital around maybe 2008. Okay. And then, uh, maybe around 2010 decided to start a business in photography, focused primarily on small group workshops, but I also do some speaking, some writing, some educational content development, uh, and a little bit of print sales. I'm hoping to do more of that 
uh, in the coming days. But that's a little bit of my origin story with uh, where I am, where I live, how I got started in photography and, and the photography business. Super. And I suppose, you know, you mentioned here in relation to, you know, the, the, the landscape point of view, was it always landscape photography that you have done or did you touch on other genres over time? No, it's, it's a great question. You know, I grew up uh, being outside all the time, you know, played sports. Uh, my family uh, was involved in fishing and uh, those kinds of things. So I just grew up, uh, you know, outside. And, uh, you know, I, I remember uh, a few years ago talking to a colleague and uh, we were talking about being outside and those kinds of things in sports. And he kind of paused and looked at me for a second and he said, you know, humans you know, really aren't meant to live in boxes, you know? And I thought about that yep. for a second, you know, it was just kind of an off the cuff remark, you know, but I thought, well, you know what, you know, you live in a box, you go to work in a box for, for most people. And, um, you know, humans really aren't wired up for that. I really don't, I don't believe so. And I, I think there's just so much more uh, to offer for our mental health, our physical health, to be outside, fresh air, roaming in, in wild places. And I think that's where, where humans really, really thrive. And uh, so, I don't know, I've just always gravitated towards that outdoor adventure kind of experience. And, uh, you know, landscape photography became a part of that and then evolved into something that was a real driver for that. And mm -hmm. so, I don't know, I've just, I've never uh, had a lot of interest in exploring other genres. I've done a little bit of sports, dabbled in that. A, a good buddy of mine, I somehow talked me into photographing his wedding when I, I, mm -hmm. I, I tried with all my might to resist that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and uh, it did it anyway. But but okay. I just cannot, you know, it's just too complicated. I think I think it's just that I have really limited brain power and okay, anything yeah. else, anything else outside of landscape would just be way, way too complicated for, for my limited brain power to, to take on. I'm similar to that. I mean, you know, people ask me, would I do, you know, weddings or communions or confirmations and such of that? And I'm saying no. And the reason why is I don't need to pose a rock. A rock will be there for me, whereas I have to pose a human. And the human to me is far too dynamic and is going to move around so much. And I have to flap around with shutter speeds and everything else. And I couldn't do a wedding because I would have the fear of me going, you get one shot at this. If you mess this up, you're hardly going to bring everybody back again just so you can get those shots again. So no, it would just be fear factor too much for me. I stick with the landscape, stick with the outdoor. Yeah. Way too much pressure with that wedding stuff, man. And, you know, I tell people kind of tongue in cheek all the time, you know, I don't shoot anything that moves, you know, unless it's clouds or water, you know, mm -hmm. because it's just, mm -hmm. ah, you know, it's just way too complicated. So, uh, but yeah, I just, I just focus on the landscape and that's, that's what really uh, gets me going and that's what uh, gets me motivated. Mm. And, you know, when you talk about landscape, there was one particular place I believe you went to was a trip to Sweden. Um, and what was it about the trip to Sweden that particularly grabbed you? Yeah, boy, you know, uh, that was probably my first extended backpacking trip. And that's really okay. what got me back outdoors. Uh, it got me uh, uh, really started in photography in a lot of ways. And so actually a friend of mine's father, uh, we were visiting and he had always wanted to do some backpacking up in the north of Sweden, which was above the Arctic Circle. And and I was just kind of on the front end of trying to get back active outdoors. And so we, we spent a while and planned a couple of backpacking trips up there. 
Nice. And, I, and I think, you know, you know, you're talking about a 10 day to 14 day backpack in a couple of cases of the trips that we took up there. And it's just an opportunity to have everything you need in life on your back, literally, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and there's a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of independence and a certain amount of self-sufficiency that you have in a backpacking experience. It's really hard to duplicate otherwise, you know, and so we, we didn't need any food resupply. So we, we essentially had everything we needed for the next 10 to 14 days of our lives. And I just, I just found that, that freedom uh, and independence uh, to just be wonderful. And then I think the other element of that, you know, when you get to sort of uh, really, truly wild places, there's just a, there's a pristine nature, you know, it's, it's mostly untouched by, by human hand. And, and that's kind of a rare thing these days. And it so uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, I'm just very thankful to have had those opportunities to be in places like that and, and uh, just to connect with places that are truly wild. You know, you're off trail, at least in one of the trips that we took. So you're just navigating uh, on your own through river valleys, up over mountain ridges, those kinds of things. And so you're not on a trail. There's, there's no evidence of, of human impact on the landscape and just truly wild and rugged in rugged places. And that just sort of pristine beauty just kind of works its way uh, into your soul in, in a lot of ways. And I don't know, that just really captivated me. And, you know, I think far north photography is special because the light, that, that low angled light mm -hmm. uh, is just hard to duplicate anywhere else. Uh, if you're up there in midsummer, which we were on a couple of those trips, I mean, you've got this three and four hour sunset sunrise so the sun is basically just kind of bouncing along low on the horizon for mm -hmm. hours mm -hmm. and hours mm -hmm. and even in midday it's still fairly low on the horizon and you have this sort of wildly changing light and, and the clouds and the landscape interacting all together and it really is just a very dynamic and uh and magical place uh that that far north so uh yeah it was just a, it was a uh, sort of a life-changing experience or a real tipping point for me personally. Yeah, I can see that, you know, because a few friends of mine have been to the Arctic Circle in the summer and you get the midnight sun and it's something that I couldn't get my head around. But then when you start thinking about it as to why the sun comes down and never really sets below the horizon, all of a sudden comes back up again, it's just as captivating. And if you get nice light, which in reality you are going to get nice light, it's like the never ending sunset. It's like all the dreams come together because the sunset will merge straight into sunrise and off you go again. And that I think in itself is captivating, but to be able to photograph that then with a camera brings a whole different world into that again, completely. So like with that in mind, you know, you've, you're starting out in photography. If you right. go back there now, and knowing what you know now, it would be a completely different thing again, I imagine. Yeah, it, it really would. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. You know, I was just trying, you know, to uh, survive, mm -hmm. you, you mm -hmm. know, so photographs were kind of, you know, I had the camera, had maybe one, two lenses at the most, you know, but in some of those areas up there, you know, you're, you're crossing these rivers, uh, they're glacial fed rivers, you know, so uh, that's probably the most dangerous part, you know, of the trip. And you, you, through books and reports, you know, this is 20 years ago. So information is, is pretty sparse. So yeah. you're trying to figure out, 
you know, where exactly is the safest place to cross these rivers? And, and in some instances, you're walking up to the banks on these rivers and you can actually hear boulders uh, rolling, uh, bouncing, you know, in the bottom of the river. And you're just like, you know, whoa, this is uh, really intense. Let's let's go find another place to, to cross the river. And uh, so there's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, sort of fear of the unknown. And, you know, if it's a unique experience, you haven't done it before. So you're, you're really trying to, to be smart and trying to minimize risk and trying to enjoy the adventure in photography is just like, oh, yeah, let's 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 uh, take out the camera, you know, when we set up camp and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but, wow. yeah, you know, uh, I was lucky uh, to be able to go back actually last March. Oh, okay. uh, right before things shut down and took a yeah. winter uh, backpacking cross-country ski trip again with my buddy, Irish Rob, okay. and uh, never having skied before in my life, <laughs> oh, uh, going going above the Arctic Circle in winter, wow. right? You know, so that's another kind of level of risk and, and crazy <laughs> storms, you know, and yeah. I don't really, and, and by the way, I don't really like cold weather. There's that. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we had this we had this extraordinary time, man. I mean, they have this uh, hut system in Sweden and Norway, mm-hmm. and uh, we managed to make it over to a hut in Norway. And the remarkable thing is in Norway, in in their entire mountain hut system across the country, there's one key that unlocks every single hut, right? It, at least in theory. So okay. Rob had paid his five dollars or whatever it was, some minimal amount of money, and had this key. So we. We arrived at this really remote, you're probably 30, 40 miles off uh, pavement at this point. We arrived at this hut, you know, it's it's locked and he, he pulls out this metal key and sure enough, man, it just, it unlocks the hut and, and in we go. Wow. And inside the hut, you have like a, you have like a, a wood burning stove, you mm-hmm. know, you have bunk beds and all this. And, uh, you know, you have the, the, the reindeer herders who uh, in wintertime, they supply the mountain huts with uh, firewood. So okay. we actually had these bags of firewood that we could use to heat up the hut and to uh, melt snow for drinking water every day and, and to cook with. So we were positioned in this valley right on the border of Sweden and Norway uh, and could stay in the hut, get out of these crazy winter storms and wait for the weather to get a little bit better and go out on our cross-country skis and explore a new valley each day. So we had five nights in this remote mountain hut above the Arctic Circle in winter on the border of Sweden and Norway. And it was just this, it was just a magical experience. I I don't know that I could describe it in words or even if the photographs would would do that, that kind of place justice. Again, just magical light, uh, snow-covered mountains, snow-covered valleys, and in spite of the fact that I had no idea how to cross-country ski, uh, <laughs> still managed to survive without any uh, orthopedic surgery that was required. Wow. But you know, isn't it a great system when you think of it, you know, that you got the one key that will open it up. You've got your basic rations and supplies, as you say, to stay alive. Um, yep. So, I mean, like we have a couple of those here in Ireland, but they're not majorly known because we don't have high mountains. Our highest mountain is a thousand meters. So right. that's a hill to a number of 3000 feet, let's just say, but that's a hill to a lot of places, but we have that system, but not in such complexity that you've got so many different areas that you can go to and you can rely on. And you, you know, if you are, as you say, going through that area, number one, you're not knowing how to ski is 
crazy. I mean, <laughs> I can't even fathom that. But, you know, you're coming. It's like a mirage. You know, you'll see this and go, oh, look at this. There it is. If we can reach this, then we get a bit of rest by the way from these storms. And like the storms can be horrendously bad and can catch you out in mountains. Mountain can change in an instant. So they're a welcome you know, respite to weary travelers that are doing these tre- these treks. And but for you to do it in winter, and not done it before, I still can't get my head around that. That's 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 mad. Like you're going, do you know what? Yeah, I think I'm going to push myself. What will I do? I'll do something that I've never done before, and I don't know how to do it. And I'm sure we'll give it a go. You were lucky; you had Irish Rob with you, I suppose, to take care of you. A- absolutely, yeah. I, w- I want to be clear that Irish Rob had been up there a couple of times before in in winter. Uh, doing some similar kind of adventures. So I, I relied heavily on his uh, expertise since mm. I had absolutely none, you know. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. was just wild because, you know, uh, never having cross-country skied before, you know, you, you clip your, your boots into the skis and they, they're locked in there. They don't yep. pop off, right? So uh-huh. if you fall, you've got to kind of unwrap your body out of some weird pretzel formation that you're in and somehow pull yourself up with a backpack and camera gear on or either which takes a lot of strength <laughs> or yeah. either you've got to unclip from your boots, which is not the end of the world, but then now you've got snow and ice that are kind of in that binding and it's hard to get your boots back in. But you yeah. know, the first day, I, you know, it was a little bit of a struggle. I think my feet were killing me. You know, I, I didn't take uh, some aftermarket insoles to put in my ski boots. So I've got flat feet. So that was not a really good combination. Uh, but mm-hmm. after the first day, you know, I, I really didn't fall as much and my feet uh, bothered me less so and, and, and actually really, really enjoyed it. So it, it turned out to be a really good experience. And, and as you mentioned, the huts are just kind of lifesavers. I mean, there were a couple of storms that were just horrendous. You know, you've got these cabins that have been there for 100 years and, and the structure is shaking, uh, you know, under the force of the wind and it's snowing mm. sideways. Can't see your hand mm. in front of your face. So. But yet some people would go out into that. And I just think, man, you know, I, I just I could not imagine going out into that kind of weather. But I guess if you grow up in that environment, you're, you're used to it and you you have the uh, the equipment and then you have the skills, you know, to survive and thrive in that kind of environment. It's 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 a different animal. But I, you know, as an inexperienced person in that kind of environment, I, I had no interest in going out and, you know, uh, whatever it was, you know, uh, 10 degrees Fahrenheit and, you know, whatever, 40, 50 mile an hour wind and snow. It's just like, oh man, that's crazy. I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, fair play to you for doing that trip. I mean, it does sound awesome, you know, and again, you know, to go back there that know that you knew how to take photos as versus the first time that you were there. And actually thinking of that, you know, when you were, after you were first there and you said, okay, I'm being bitten by this photography bug and you're learning your craft and learning photography. Did you ever think at that stage that it would become your career? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I, I didn't I didn't think about that, to be honest. You know, I, I remember a, a sort of a, a tipping point in my photography journey it was in the Great Smoky Mountains, which is, uh, I don't know, it's about three hours here from Nashville. And this was still in the film days. And it was a it was an early morning. I was next to a, a cascade uh, by myself. And uh, this light was coming through the forest and it and it lit the, the cascade. And uh, it sort of lit the mist that was coming nice. off the cascade. Yep. And then you had the subtle shadows of the rhododendron canopy behind it. And I just thought, wow, that is an amazing sight with very uh, subtle light 
kind of mm-hmm. dramatic on the one hand with the spotlighting, but yet also subtle too. Kind of had the best of both worlds. And I thought, man, that's, that's I sure hope I don't screw up this photo. And uh, so it was slide film, got the slides back, whatever, two weeks later, and just thought, oh, wow, I think this could, could work out. And just with basic Photoshop skills, tried to, tried to make it what I wanted it to be and actually print it out. And, and I, I vividly remember that print rolling off the, the, the printer and, and having this sort of full circle moment of, of having this uh, wonderful a gift of an experience in, in nature uh, that really resonated with me and, and, and somehow being able to capture some of that, you know, on a piece of film to process it, scan it, and then print it out and have some tangible representation of that experience. And, and it was just kind of in that moment that I thought, you know what, this is, this is what I want to do. This, this mm-hmm. is, this is the coolest thing I think I've experienced. And I don't know what it means to do photography, but I just know that this is something that I want to do more of. So I didn't have yeah. any earthly idea about pursuing it as a business or how much time I would invest in it. I just think in that moment, that experience, that photograph, that print, uh, that was a tipping point for me where I just, I haven't looked back since. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I just love photography and I love uh, what it's done for me personally. And I, and I love, uh, you know, sharing uh, experiences and places with other people who have a similar mindset about it. Very, very interesting. And, you know, you've also mentioned that you, photography allows you to go to and brings you to many, many stunning places around the world. And I'm sure, you know, you've seen a number of things and been able to photograph a number of things over the years. But I know it's a difficult question. Like It's like asking, you know, who's your favorite child or who's your favorite <laughs> pet? But do you have a favorite location of the places that photography has allowed you to visit? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think if if I could only photograph one place and I'm not able to photograph any other, you know, so it's a hypothetical. But but for me, that would be fall color in Colorado. Uh, It's just, you know, there's a place where we where we go that we've been going for, I don't know, about a dozen years or so. There's an aspen grove there west of town that's literally 12 miles long, and it's actually one organism it's a it's a single organism but it's it's a it's a unique place but you you have these massive uh stark white uh aspen trunks and you have this gold uh yellow sometimes orange and even red color you know in the leaves uh depending upon where you are there might be a massive uh, mountain in the background nice but and then you might have snow. So you, it's just, um, I don't know. There's something about an Aspen Grove in fall color that is just so striking, so surreal. And, uh, it's just a, it's just a magical place. And I, and I really love photographing forests in general. You know, it's, there are an infinite number of possibilities to photograph in, in a forest. You know, if you're photographing a lake in front of a mountain, well, it's cool, but there's probably only so many photographs you're going to make in front of that kind of grand scene like that. Whereas gotcha. a forest, uh, you know, it might be hard to photograph. It might be hard to simplify or work out a composition, but I'd, I'd much rather go to a place where I can make a bunch of different photographs and enjoy that rather than go to a place and hope the light works out and hope you get the one photograph that's there. A, num- a number of things, Dusty, come out of that. And I mean, the first thing I'll say to you is I am extremely jealous when I see the autumn colors or the fall colors, you guys call it in the States, 
that I see from the States. And Colorado yep. does seem to be an area which is incredible in relation to it. New England on the other side seems to be another place which is absolutely stunning. And, you know, I, my wife is American. She's from Wisconsin. And uh, we'd go to the States when before we had the kids, we'd go every year. But um, the last trip that we were there, which was two years ago now, we said we'd go there for uh, October. And I said, OK, I want to go for October. I want to try and get the autumn colors and such like that. And even I caught it towards the tail end. I was looking mm -hmm. at all the forecasts because you guys, again, have forecasting based on the uh, the height of the, the, the latitude level. So you can see in relation to where it is, the predictions and stuff like that. We don't have that in Ireland. So I was able to look and go, OK, yeah, I think think we've timed it right. But when we, when we got there, it had started a small bit earlier. So I got towards the end of that. But I was amazed with the plethora of colors that I even I had seen. So to see that in and the aspens, you know, and again, as you say, the white trunk, the unbelievable colors that will be in the background, the, the, the uniqueness, the, you know, the delicateness of the leaves and the different things that you can get. And even looking at some of your images from there as well, I can see why that would be a favorite. But then to say that you can also get snow when you have all that, I mean, that is just, yeah, okay. So I, I want to go, you know, that kind of way. I'd, I'd love to go back and love to be able to see that and not only see it, but also photograph it because it is a, an unbelievable color palette. I've never seen anything like it that you can get in the U.S., you know? Yeah, it, it is kind of crazy. I, I think I'm, I'm looking at the the only print of my work that I, that I have in the house is actually from there, and it was kind of a unique condition. It was one of those falls, I think it was maybe 2014, uh, where there was uh, a dramatic snow kind of in the peak of fall color. And so the image has some evergreens at the base with some snow below them. And then above them are red aspens, gold aspens, some evergreen mixed in there and some yellow aspens and then some snow at the top. And it's just this layered uh, color and texture of snow and trees. And and uh, now you, you really can't make that photograph anymore because the evergreens uh, at the base have grown so tall that they've colored, oh. they've covered up the, the red aspens uh, that were behind them. Wow. But that's, but that's the one photo that I've got, uh, I've got printed and, and, and hanging in her home. It was just a, just a special year that year and just a special moment uh, to, to be able to photograph that scene. Sounds like a special place. All right. I can't blame you for having it as you know, you know, your favorite. And I think, yeah. you know, what I'd like to do, I suppose I have one question, one final question to ask you before I go for break, right? Which is something that I do quite a lot. And as I kind of look back retrospectively and say, okay, you know, five years ago when I was taking a photograph, I didn't know what I was doing. Four years ago, I knew a bit more. Three, I knew a bit more. Two and one and so forth like that. But like, looking back now from where you've come from when you first got bitten by the bug to where you are to this present day, as you say, you know, workshop leader, you're a speaker and such like that. What would you change if you were to start all over again in regards to your photography? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think those are hard because you know, when you start to redo decisions, I think the thing you don't know is what sort of unintended consequences might, might flow out of those. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that I, that I, uh, stayed in my, uh, primary career when I did, I, I enjoyed that work and was able to have some positive closure on that season of work life for me. So sure. I don't know that I would have left that any earlier, you know, in retrospect, uh, so now I have a lot more freedom and flexibility to do as, as much or as little photography as I want to do. So I, I've got a lot of freedom 
with my photography now that if I had transitioned earlier, that might not be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think of the big decisions relative to my photography, I don't, I don't know that I would redo that one. Uh, you know, if I could talk to myself five or 10 years ago, I would probably say, you know, look, you know, when you're out in the field or you're exploring locations, you know, uh, take a little bit more risk. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I think the best photographs are always when you push a little farther, you go a little harder, you you go into places that make you a little bit more uncomfortable. You know, mm-hmm. don't take unknown risk or wildly illogical risk, but but kind of move through your fears a little bit more, embrace mm-hmm. some discomfort, take take on a little bit more risk. Because I think looking back over the last 10 years, the best photographs are always coming from those moments when you went into an unknown, you went into a place of discomfort, you took on a little bit more risk. So I think in general, if I could give myself advice, you know, 10 years ago, that's that's what I would say. Good advice and good advice for today as well. Absolutely. You know, yeah, really, really good. So, look, okay, Dusty, I've really enjoyed the, you know, finding out the backstory in relation to it. What we're going to do is we're going to take a very quick break and be right back. I want to learn more about your approach to teaching. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Sounds great, Darren. If you're enjoying this episode of the Irish Photography Podcast, why not jump back and listen to the back catalog we have of episodes where you'll get some great insights from fantastic guests gear reviews, lots of hints and tips, and above all else, keeping you company while you drive or relax. Thanks very much for listening. Please consider subscribing, leaving a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you're very welcome back to the Irish Photography Podcast. So Dusty, like I alluded to there before the break, I'd like to learn more in relation to your approach to teaching. So tell me a bit about it, because I think you've got quite a unique aspect and a unique view that you share with your students. So Tell me about your approach to teaching. Yeah, well, you know, for um, a new student, a new participant, you know, the first thing that we like to do is to send them a survey. So what we want to know is where are they in their photographic journey? You know, where are they on craft? Where are they on composition? What equipment do they have? Uh, what What is their favorite equipment to use? What is their least favorite equipment to use? Who is their photographic inspiration? Uh, what is it that they want to learn? Uh, are they in the midst of any photographic projects? So we, we, we want to give people an opportunity to uh, share as much about their photographic journey as, as they can so that we can understand what, what they might want from that four or five day experience and, and how to move them forward in their photography. So that's the first piece of the puzzle. The second piece is that we've developed about 200 pages of PDF content on a range of of relevant topics to landscape photography that we've tried to kind of distill down into manageable chunks of information without overwhelming anyone. And okay. so we, we share those, those PDFs with them. So we feel like uh, we're equipping them on, on the front end uh, before they arrive on a workshop uh, to understand what the goals are and, and to understand some basics of craft and composition and, and personal expression. And then once the workshop is, is underway in the field, you know, we've tried to prioritize time in the field. You know, it's the one thing that you can't do from home. So we choose not to, in, you know, conduct a lot of lectures or uh, we do a little bit of digital darkroom time, but, but, but not a ton because we can do that after the workshop also. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so we try to prioritize uh, shooting time in the field. 
we want to give people an opportunity to photograph really interesting and exciting locations where they can explore a variety of compositions. And we want to give them compositional ideas. And then we want to kind of get out of their hair and let them do their own thing. People don't like, you know, someone looking over their shoulder and telling them exactly what to do and how to do it all the time. You know, hey, can we help troubleshoot? Do you need ideas? And, uh, you know, then we just we we let them photograph, which which is what I would want to do, too, in that same kind of scenario. And then, you know, post-workshop, you know, we we do, uh, you know, follow up online via, you know, Zoom and mm-hmm. uh, do image reviews and, and digital darkroom support as, as much as people want and need. So uh, we understand that everybody has different goals. You know, some people are, are most interested in a shared group adventure. Some people want to learn about a location. Some people want to learn something, you know, new in photography. And so everybody has a little bit different set of priorities and we try to we try to understand what those are as best we can and, and try to meet or hopefully exceed expectations when possible. It sounds really, really good because you know you're investing in your students before they even become your student. And then when they're in the field, you've got the groundwork done so you can now concentrate on getting that image. But I think the bigger one, as you say, is that you know you're not over their shoulder, but you are there in case they need you. And that's the most important part because you know I've seen so many people over the years that would go on different types of uh, workshops and they didn't find the composition themselves. They didn't put in the settings into the camera themselves. Effectively, the instructor did it all for them in the field. So when they go back out then without the instructor, they're lost because they don't know how did they get that image. So I think it's a very, very good approach, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't really... Uh you know, help someone to do everything for them. You know, it's sort of like either give them a fish or, or teach them how to fish, right? So same yeah. same kind of concept. And and yeah, we want people to come back with great images, right? So we, we want to do everything we can to, to make that happen. But we also want people to learn and we want people to grow, you know, in their photography. So if they're stuck for ideas, we'll say, hey, look, you know, let's try a different lens. Or let's improve this composition this way. But now I'm going to back away, you know, and, and let you let you sort it out from here. And so yeah. I think that, that most people uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned in the first part there in relation to loving the wild and being in the wild. And it is an area, something that is becoming harder to find as, as times will go on. You know, what is it about finding an area that's been off the beaten track that you, you love so much? And is that something that you try and encourage within your, 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 your teachings and such like that with students as well? Yeah, I, I think that it's it's an interesting uh, season that that we're in right now in in landscape photography. You know, and starting out in film, there were just a a handful of books and just a, a little bit of information here and there about locations, mm-hmm. right? So in order to to uh, to get to places, you really had to do a lot of exploring, and um, that's not always practical uh, for uh, people. So yeah. you know, if if uh, you know, you want to get to some places that haven't been so heavily photographed, well, then you have to get off the beaten path. And I think you can kind of leave what's already been done at, at other places behind and, and you can really explore uh, wild places and, and new places without having to think about doing something different or doing something that's, that's you know, been repeated so many times. I mean, you know, hey, great. You know, the Grand Canyon, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. And I'm not going to not photograph the, the, the Grand Canyon because it's been photographed so many times. Yeah. But yeah. I think if I had a choice, I'd rather try to do a backpack or get to some off the beaten 
uh, path side of the Grand Canyon and uh, do some exploring on my own rather than, you know, uh, repeat some of the compositions that have been done from the South Rim, for example. So I don't know. I, I, I don't get too hung up on originality. I just like seeing places that are new and mm-hmm. seeing places that uh, are wild as much as uh, can be and, um, you know, exploring new compositions. So that that's fun for me and uh, fun for me to share those types of places with other people. Mm, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of sharing places with people, you know, again, you mentioned in the intro, you know, you're an accomplished speaker. And tell me, how has that journey been so far? How did you get into the aspect of you know, public speaking about photography and, and what do you like about it or what don't you like about it? What, what's the journey been like so far on that? Yeah, it's it's uh, kind of crazy that I enjoy speaking. You know, when I was a kid, all, all through school, I actually, actually hated getting it up in front of a group. I just I couldn't stand it. You know, when I was a kid, I I uh, had to do a presentation in front of the entire school and I, and I, and I put my, my book on the stand. And I was getting ready to speak and the whole stand just fell down the stage and the whole school just burst into laughter. And I think I just froze and I was just like, oh, man, this this getting up in front of people is just not for me. And so I I really uh, just was like a lot of people just didn't enjoy, you know, speaking in front of groups, I I think, for for that reason. And I'm most like most landscape photographers, mostly an introverted person. Mm-hmm. But uh, fast forward through uh, a, a 30 year career in, in university life. Well, you know, in my role there, you know, I'm speaking to groups almost every day. So I'm speaking to group of, groups of students. I'm speaking to groups of faculty. Uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, corporate training uh, with groups of people. Just, uh, you know, a, a lot of presenting to, you know, small to medium size uh, groups mm-hmm. of, of humans. And um, it's like a lot of things, you know. You know, the more you do of something, the the less fear you have of it, the more comfortable that you are with it. And then I find that, you know, working with groups of people, uh, you know, it's really energizing. So uh, for me, I enjoy speaking and, and interacting uh, with groups, which is which is ironic, given, you know, how much I didn't like it yeah, probably from, yeah. through my through my college years. But uh, for photography, yeah, I mean, I think if you're passionate about something, I think that's the key. Like, if if you're really, really passionate about something, you can't stop talking about it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So at that mm-hmm. point, you've got the energy, you've got the enthusiasm that I think is important to bring to a group presentation, and then I think it's just trying to structure it uh, in a way that uh, people can uh, take something away from it that's that's useful. So you're trying to motivate people, you're trying to inspire them in some way, but at least I try to offer them something that they can uh, apply from a practical point of view too. So it's great to go get motivated, but if you haven't really taken anything away that you can do with that, well, then mm-hmm. what do you do with the motivation? So mm-hmm. uh, I, I try to I try to weave in some motivation and inspiration and some practical uh, takeaways for that. And I always try to try to follow up and, and give handouts uh, for links to follow up where people can find more practical information. So for me, that's that's uh, very rewarding to be able to to uh, be with a group of like minded photographers and try to offer some inspiration and some some practical tips along the way. Fantastic, you know, and you know, you, you'd want to be comfortable doing it as well because you've just been announced as a leader uh, and speaker at an upcoming event. First of all, congratulations on that. Secondly, tell us what is it? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, the Out of the Great Smoky Mountains. Uh, it's going to be a conference uh, that's held uh, in the spring of 2022. So that's uh, just come online. So really excited about that. Uh, there are, I think, a, over a dozen instructors, uh, people that, uh, I mean, are just some amazing photographers, and they've been instructing for a long, long time. So I'm uh, honored to be uh, among that group of photographers. And uh, I would say that, uh, you know, late April, at least for me, it's the best time of the year to be in the park. You mm-hmm. have a lot of water in the creeks and cascades and waterfalls. You also have wildflowers. You also have uh, wild dogwoods that are blooming uh, around the creeks. And of course, you have the, the classic stacked mountain ridges, the beautiful coves uh, that are in the mountains as well. Uh, and the forest canopy, there is a unique period of, I don't know, maybe one or two weeks where the, the leaves first come out. And they have this kind of lighter, almost lime green yeah, Iridescent color. green, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when those leaves first come out. And so uh, to me, that, that late April, early May is uh, the best time of year to be in the park. It's not as crowded that time of year either. And so to have an opportunity to really interact with a lot of amazing photographers, instructors, and like-minded photographers, I think is just fantastic. So it's, it's never been held before in the Smokies. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, to being there, uh, in April of, uh, 2022. Yeah. I'd say it's going to be awesome. And as you say, you know, you're going to be with a bunch of other super talented, uh, photographers. So I think the audience will get a huge mix and diversity of, you know, speaking and teaching and stuff like that. And as you say, you know, to go into the park at that point in time with that, with those conditions and obviously hopefully some nice light. I think it will be an excellent uh, conference. So, yeah, well done on uh, on being part of the inaugural one for sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, we mentioned a couple of times here about Irish Rob. So I presume his first name isn't Irish and his second name isn't Rob. So who is Rob? And tell me you're just back from Iceland with him. So tell me all about the trip too. Uh, yeah, so uh, the origin story with with Rob, who's uh, been living in Dublin for for twenty years now, okay. uh, actually actually met him backpacking in the north of Sweden. Naturally, uh, I met yeah, him, I, do, I would yeah. say, in twenty fourteen. Okay, and uh, it was it was odd because we were backing backpacking, and up there, it, there's really not a trail; it's just sort of rocks, and uh, we saw this guy who was actually trying to bike pack his way over these rocks. I just thought, I've just never seen that before. What is this guy doing? You know, he'd throw his bike over his shoulder when the rocks got bigger and he'd hike. And then when it kind of flattened out a little bit and he could avoid some rocks, then, you know, he'd, he'd ride his bike. And I just thought, I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I got to talk to this guy. I've just never yeah. seen anybody try to do that. And so uh, he was hiking the same direction as we were. And so, uh, staying outside the huts and, and tent camping and uh, just a really engaging and, and unique guy. You know, he's sort of like a backcountry chef. You know, he can whip up some like, uh, you know, fine dining in the backcountry, like like nobody's business. And so okay. uh, we had a great time uh, hiking together and uh, camping together uh, on that particular trip. Uh, we ran into one another un- unplanned uh, again, I think, in Iceland uh, in 2015 and, and, and shared a couple of days there. And uh, have stayed in touch over the years. And uh, yeah, I wanted to plan a trip 
Uh, actually, last year, we, of course, we couldn't do it. Travel was was shut down, and so yeah, we postponed a, the trip and, and did it this bit. year. Yeah. And wanted to get into the uh, interior of Iceland, a place that I had really wanted to get back to uh, and explore much more in depth than what I'd had the opportunity to do before. And and Rob was was keen. You know, he's done some interesting uh, hikes and backpacks <laughs> through that area. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he said, "Well, yeah, right on. I'll just." Uh, you know, ferry my uh, Land Rover on over to Iceland from Ireland. And it's like, how is that going to happen? So anyway, he's got this whole series of ferries that he's uh, scheduled that brought him over there. And, and he's now uh, on his way back. Uh, wow. Anyway, we, we met up and uh, we had nine days camping uh, in the interior of Iceland, which is just a wild place that is just... Uh, almost impossible to describe with with words or, or photographs so you just have everything there i mean you have glaciers you have wild geothermals you have nice. moonscapes you have waterfalls and it was just extraordinary and uh we had a, just an absolute total blast and and towards the end of the trip there was an opportunity we were hoping for an opportunity i should say to see the volcano going mm-hmm. off in the southwest uh part of the island and so there's like this live webcam and it was kind of going off. And we thought, well, okay, let's just, <laughs> we're here. We got to go for this. So we, we drive out there and it's just natural, you know, that it would be like about a 50 mile an hour wind, okay, just horrendous wind. Right. You know, but we're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to go anyway. So you, you hike up over this mountain ridge and thankfully the wind is blowing in the right direction. So it's not blowing the poisonous gas so, towards so you. Straight into you. Yeah. Yeah. And so we just had a blast. It was very difficult to photograph uh, in that amount of wind, but the volcano was indeed going off and it was just spewing up lava out of the cone. A small cone opened up in front of it and lava was going out there. And you looked across the lava field and there's this lava bubbling up all across uh, this lava field. And uh, it was just an amazing couple of hours of uh, photography. I'm not sure I had a whole lot of photographs <laughs> that were sharp in that kind of in that kind of wind, but it was just one of those once in a lifetime experiences. I mean, I've never seen anything like that before, and uh, we were just very fortunate to be able to see the volcano being being that active. And uh, yeah, we just we had a complete blast. We really did. Good stuff. You know what? Look, you're in Iceland. You have to go look at it because, I mean, uh, a friend of mine now, he's been a guest in the podcast a couple of times, which is Thor, um, you know, yep. Thor Photography. I mean, he was there the day it happened. And I had him on the podcast the day after that because I wanted to hear all about it. And then there's another guy, Mike Mez, who'd gone over with them as well. And they'd been in areas that were 20 meters away from this first fissure, which you cannot get anywhere near now. And, you know, it it has changed so much. It has come down, has flowed down hills, everything. It's a, I'd love to go see it. Um, well, I say I'd love to go see it. I, I would really like to have seen it when it first arrived because yep. the uniqueness in relation to that. But the funny thing about it was, as he was telling me, he says the amount of drones that have been lost, <laughs> people flying drones over and drones melting because they got too close or they got hit by, you know, spewing lava and such like that. You couldn't pass it up. You yeah. have to go and look at it that's there, you know, but I think it's something that I've never experienced uh, anything like that. And even right now uh, in La Palma, which is in Tenerife, there's another mm-hmm. volcano after going off and that's threatening to reach the ocean and destroy quite a lot within there. So it's a powerful thing for sure. Get the right conditions. You can get some incredible photographs 
Um, but yeah, if we've got 50 mile an hour sideways winds and, you know, that's not very conducive to <laughs> getting sharp shots anyway for a start, you know? Yeah, it, it really was an incredible experience. And, you know, the wind was just blowing so hard. You try to put the wind at your back and, you know, I've got this uh, new lens that I'm working with and, you know, you got to go with a, a lot faster shutter speed and it, you know, it was just so, uh, so hard to try to get some, some sharp shots. Uh, you know, I haven't looked at all of them yet. I've uploaded everything. But okay. I, I, I'm I'm hopeful that I, I may have a half a dozen or so that that oh, really uh, worked yeah. out. But yeah, it was it was difficult hiking to get out of there. You know, it's uh, uneven terrain, so you're kind of hiking on the side of a ridge. It's kind of rocky, so in that kind of wind, it's it's hard to kind of keep your balance and and place your foot where you want it to go because the wind's you know blowing your whole body around. So it was just wow. it was just absolute craziness out there. But it, it was it was wild that you could get that close to something like that. I I, I just I, I was just amazed. Yeah, yeah, I know it's an incredible thing, and fair play to you for making the trip. And you know, I think like to go to different areas in Iceland as well is a a good thing to do because like when you go, as you say, to the wild areas, you're not going to rock up to the honeypot locations. Okay, they're beautiful <laughs> for a reason, but you're not going to find those things, and you can create something which is of your own. And that actually brings me to the next question, I suppose, is that you know. Are you, a, are you a composition guy or are you a light guy? Like, yeah. you know, when, it's, there's always a balance between the two. And I'd like to hear your thoughts in relation to, to that. Because when you go, you find a new composition. You don't find a new light. And that's where I often think about when people say, you know, like Adam Gibbs would say, it's all about the light. Yes, but in my, my view, you can have great light and poor composition or you can have a good composition and poor light. A good composition is going to win, in my opinion. But what's your thoughts on that yeah i i think i'm gonna i think i'm gonna have to agree with you on 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 that one you know i i think it's i think it's always some comp uh combination of composition of light and and perhaps an interesting subject so if you have all three of those sort of like three legs of a stool you've mm -hmm. got at least potential you know if you execute the photo really well to have something that's that's really compelling and really interesting and, and really meaningful for you Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, yeah, you know, if you have great light and an interesting subject, but there's not really a way to compose it, well then it's not really going to be a photograph or maybe you do a, a, a less than stellar job with the comp with the composition, then the photograph probably is going to fail. So mm -hmm. I think the, the glue, if you will, that really holds a compelling photograph together or what, what really creates the photograph is of course the, the composition. But, you know, a, a good photographer is also going to do a good job of finding a compelling subject and seeing a compelling subject. And a good photographer is probably going to be able to assess the light and find interesting and compelling light, too. So the photographer is is involved, you know, with all three of those aspects. You know, obviously, sure. you know, you can't control the light, but but you can uh, pursue it and, and maybe find interesting light. And, you know, when we talk to the people in the workshops, we say, look, you know, find something that's visually interesting for you. What's what's interesting? What are you curious about? What's compelling for you? And mm -hmm. then consider the light. Is it is it you know, what direction is it coming from? You know, uh, and how do you want to photograph the light on that particular subject that's interesting to you? And then finally, start to work out your composition. You know, mm -hmm. what elements yeah. of graphic design do you want to use? And are there some compositional strategies that you can employ that are going to make the photograph express what you want it to? But find something visually interesting, find some interesting light, and then work out the composition. It doesn't always work out that way, but I think that's a good way to approach a place that you haven't been to before. 
I think that's a fantastic view, actually, as you say, you know, to have the three pillars in relation to it, because like, you can have a great composition, like an interesting subject, but then the light is what makes it that banger image. And I think, yeah, I know that's a very, very, very good analogy. I really like that. I might, I might have to change my view on that now after, after that. You never know. Um, and another thing as well is, you know, I've seen I've, when I was doing some research in relation to you, you know, you've spoken at groups a lot before in relation to black and white photography. And like, why do you think that, mo- that some people would overlook black and white and, and how powerful can black and white be? Yeah, I, I think, uh, for me, at least black and white photography is harder. You know, you, um, you see the world in color, so it's, it's kind of hard to see it with your own eyes, uh, and think about how that scene might look in black and white. But that's the mm-hmm. beauty of a lot of the modern cameras now is you can turn them into black and white mode and you can look at the LCD or through the viewfinder and see the scene in black and white. And I think that really helps a lot. And I think, um, I think you just have to be very intentional with, with black and white photography. I think you have to have uh, really strong uh, composition skills because you're not relying on color anymore. Mm-hmm. It's about contrast. It's about all the compositional elements. And I think it just requires more from the photographer to be able to see those compositional elements and to frame them up successfully and to really mm-hmm. handle especially in the field and then in the dark room, those subtle tones, you know, from, from light to dark. And I just think it's, I don't know, it's, it's in my experience, it's not easy to do black and white photography very, very well. I I think about light in terms of there's either bold and dramatic light. And I think black and white works really well there. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also this really subtle light that's really pleasing to our eyes and black and white can, can work well there. It's the kind of that light that's in between uh, that's just not so interesting, especially in black and white color. You can kind of save the day if the light is just okay. Mm -hmm. But I think in black and white, you either need something bold and dramatic or you need something that has a lot of subtlety to it that the eye can really, you know, enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I don't know, it's just, it's just harder. And I think if you don't see the world in black and white, you know, it, that's just another, another level of, of uh, sort of a barrier to overcome. But, you know, with the camera, you can switch into black and white mode and, and that will help you with your composition. Yeah, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly in relation to that because, you know, you can have a scene which would lend itself perfectly to black and white. And unless unless you're thinking that or seeing that, you'll never even think about having a black and white image. And unless, and as a phrase I've mentioned a number of times before, which is if it's shite, go black and white. And what I mean by that is you can rescue an image by going black and white because you will have, you know, the tonality and the contrast in relation to it. But if you go intentionally, it opens up a whole different world. And I, I love that yeah. of black and white, you know? Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think there's more freedom to push contrast in a black and white image than there is with color. So, you know, if you really want jet black skies or uh, whatever the case may be, there's, there's freedom to do that because the image is already abstract because it's black mm-hmm. and white. Whereas mm-hmm. if you push color too far, it, at least in my opinion, uh, it, it really degrades, you know, the colors just get wild. I mean, if that's what you want to do, fine, but it's just uh, for me and kind of that classic landscape uh, foundation that I have, mm-hmm. if you push too much contrast and the colors get funky, it just kind of ruins the image. But with black mm-hmm. and white, hey, push the contrast as far as you want and see what happens. It might work out really great. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and you've also written a number of different articles for magazines and such like that. How do you approach that? Because, I mean, it's going to, a speaking event is one thing, going teaching in the field is another thing. But when you have to articulate that down on paper, how do you approach writing for something for magazines then? Yeah, I think I, I approach writing, you know, uh, from the standpoint of what I would like to read. And so okay. I like something that's that's entertaining. I like something that maybe has some humor in it. And I, and I like a, a good, compelling story. So I think when I'm writing something, I'm thinking about humor. I'm thinking about interesting. I'm thinking about storytelling. And I, I approach it that way. But writing for me is just, uh, of, of the things that I do, it's, it's probably the most painful thing that I do. You know, I'm not a, a detailed person. So there's just a lot of proofreading and editing and, you know, the grammar, the spelling, the punctuation, the wording, the phrasing, and all of those things you can just kind of obsess on forever mm -hmm. and forever. Mm -hmm. And the work just never gets done. So uh, I enjoy writing, uh, but I just find it, of the things that I do, the most sort of painstaking and the most sort of difficult and, and challenging. I'm, I'd much rather speak in front of a group. I can just kind of be off the cuff. I can have an outline, but I can kind of ad lib my way through a presentation and, and feel like I'm, I'm doing a good job. But mm -hmm. with writing, I don't know. I don't know that I have that, that kind of natural gift of being able to sort of draw people in and entertain them and captivate them you know, with the written word that that some people really, really uh, do so very well. I just don't think I have that. I can I can write factual, well organized information, mm -hmm. but but it's not sort of entertaining and captivating the way mm -hmm. a really really skilled writer uh, can write. So it's 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 probably the thing that drives me bananas the most. <laughs> in, in, interesting, and, and as you say it, is it because you know? I would class most photographers in here as visual people, you know, mm -hmm. whereas when you're writing, it's more of a kind of kinesthetic thing. You know, it's, it's you're, you're, you're making the contact with the keyboard or the writing with the hand or whatever it may be, but you don't have the visual representation there to assist you writing it. But also you're putting yourself in the mindset of the reader that they could be visual too. And you have to paint that picture through the words, as opposed to the power of the image, bringing that to life. Would that be kind of a good analogy in it. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, that's maybe why I pursue photography yeah. <laughs> as the primary outlet as opposed to writing. You know, I think writing is just it's just harder for me. Mm. Uh, but mm. I, I do like I, I do think ultimately, you know, when you're pursuing photography as a form of personal expression, that there's only so much a photograph can say. So I think the ideal world is to have a really strong collection of images, a group of images, and, and there's more storytelling opportunity with mm -hmm. a group of images. And, mm -hmm. and if you're able to combine, combine that group of images with, with a little bit of narrative, mm -hmm. then I think for me, that's, that's the best of all worlds. Because if you're just storytelling without any pictures, ah, you know, that's, there's only so much you can do there. And if you're just sort of sharing a group of photos, but nobody really knows what you took, why you took them, what you hope to express through them, well, then that I don't know. There's only so much that's that's happening there. Mm -hmm. But I really like the folio concept, which uh, Brooks Jensen from from Lensworks been promoting for years and years and years, which is just mm -hmm. 10 or 12 images, maybe as many as 15 and and sequence those, organize those, tell the story with a group of images and then combine that with some narrative. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's 
I, I love the folio concept for that reason, because I'm not having to create, you know, a hundred pages of con of written content. I'm not having to edit, you know, 40 or 50 images. I can just distill this project down to 12 or 15 images and write a few pages of content and feel like I can communicate what I'm hoping to communicate through, through that particular uh, medium. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, like, if you think in relation to a time that we've got coming up right now, which is fall, right? So you've got an unbelievable color palette. And if yep. you're you're talking about the color palette is one thing, you're looking at it is another thing, but a combination of the two, then it becomes a cohesive body of work that you can see what the author is mentioning by looking at the visual representation on the image that they're talking about as well. So I think absolutely, I think a combination of both is uh, is bang on. And actually, speaking of fall, it's fast approaching. So like on a scale of one to 11 being Spinal Tap, how excited are you? Well, I'm I'm very excited about getting out for fall color. Uh, I'll be hitting the road uh, going to Canada, going to the Canadian Rockies. Nice. Uh, that's our, our first workshop that we have uh, coming up. And then uh, home for one night, and then back out to uh, Acadia, it, which is in Maine, nice. uh, for some fall color up there, and then flying directly from Maine <laughs> out to Utah. Uh, so we will be seeing some cottonwoods and some fall color, you know, uh, out there, hopefully. But it's such a compelling, you know, place where the fall color happens in Utah. There's there's so much to photograph there. So, uh, yeah, so we'll be out for three weeks. So I'm wow. I'm excited about that opportunity to get to some really amazing places on the one hand. I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, sort of hesitant about the travel logistics and, and hopeful that all those logistics <laughs> work out. Yeah, uh, sure. So yeah, cautiously optimistic, I think is maybe a good way to describe where I'm at today. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know what? Look, I'm really looking forward to seeing your images that will come from these trips. And I mean, yeah, back to back trips, one night home just to charge the batteries and wash the clothes yep. and then you're back out again. So, yeah, it'll be an interesting trip. OK, I'm going to take one final break and I'm going to come back. I have three questions that I ask all of my guests and I'm looking forward to hearing your answers. So I'll be right back after this. If you're enjoying this episode of the Irish Photography Podcast, why not jump back and listen to the back catalogue we have of episodes, where you'll get some great insights from fantastic guests, gear reviews, lots of hints and tips, and above all else, keeping you company while you drive or relax. Thanks very much for listening. Please consider subscribing, leaving a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And you're very welcome back to the final part of the Irish Photography Podcast. So, Dusty, like I said, I've got three questions to ask all of my guests, and I'm really looking forward now to hearing your answers. So the first one in this is a funny photography story. Everybody has some. What's yours? Yeah, I have, have too many, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> but I'll, I'll share one uh, naturally from Iceland, which was uh, a year ago. Okay. So it, it, it just so happened that we were uh, starting a, a workshop in Iceland last year in the midst of the second most powerful storm in the history of the North Atlantic. Okay. So let that sink into your brain, right? Okay. It was insane. So there were, there were a hundred foot high seas measured during the storm. Nice. And uh, we heard from one of the glacier guides on the South coast that the winds were measured at 150 miles an hour. Okay. During the storm. So uh, it's a pretty fierce storm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as luck would have it, though, our, our group was able to make it in with only about a 12 hour delay. So uh, we're still out in the field, uh, myself and my two uh, teaching buddies. And we're mm -hmm. trying to make it back in close to the airport before the storm gets there. Well, unfortunately for us, we don't arrive before the storm. 
Okay. <laughs> so we're, we're, we have a very simple task, which is to go from the van to the hotel lobby, right. which, which in a normal circumstance wouldn't be a difficult or complicated task. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Expect>. However, <laughs> since the storm had beat us to the hotel, it became very complicated very quickly. So I had my camera backpack on. I had uh, two uh, bags of luggage and I had our prized possession, which was our food bag under, <laughs> under my arm. Okay. And, and hopeful that I could make it from the van into the lobby of the hotel where we had booked that night so we could pick everybody up from, from the airport the next day. So out of the wind is blowing some ungodly amount. Like I, I can't even estimate how fast it was going, but I'm, I'm making pretty good progress towards the hotel. I'm feeling, I'm feeling good about my odds of, of making it. Okay. And then there's another maybe 20 yards to go, but you have to turn the corner and go a little bit more into the direction where the wind right. is coming from behind you now. Okay. So as I turn the corner, immediately the wind literally knocks my feet out from underneath me, oh. picks me up into the air, and then drops me back on my backpack. So my luggage right. is on the ground. I've fallen on my camera backpack. I'm wondering what just happened. The food bag goes flying across <laughs> the parking lot. And I'm just kind of stunned. You know, it's just one of those moments where you try to figure out, okay, what just happened? And uh-huh. then what in the heck am I going to do now? Uh-huh. I kind of I kind of roll over and I look at the hotel. And there's these giant plate glass windows. And there's like about 30 people with their face <laughs> pressed to the window looking at me like, what just happened? And what are you going to do now? And I just thought, I just thought, oh, I don't know. what I don't know what's, go- what's going on. Well, well, thankfully, my, my two teaching buddies, good buddies that they are, go straight sprinting towards me, I'm thinking, to, to help me. But no, they don't stop. They keep going. And they rescue the food bag food. to get the peanut M&Ms, which is really the thing that was much more important to them than, than my well-being. So thanks to their goodwill... Uh, we were able to have, have peanut M&M's uh, that night, you know, for dinner. And uh, we eventually made it into the hotel lobby relatively intact. Wow. Wow. That's some story. Now, in fair enough, not, you know, they did get the priorities right. They did get the peanut M&M's, right? You know, you hey, were man. able to get back up yourself. And I think it even went to the audience of the 30 people as well. Probably gave them a round of applause because they went and got the food bag, yeah? <laughs> yeah, we should have shared some. I guess we we overlooked that uh, opportunity, but uh, but yeah, we we somehow did make it in. But man, that was just crazy, you know. And, and I remember at the very first trip that my wife and I made to Iceland back in I think 2005. We were flying home. We looked out the window. And we saw luggage literally flying through the air across the world. It wasn't even touching the runway. We're mm-hmm. talking about you know 60, 75 pound bags. Hypothetically, mm-hmm. they are literally uh, cartwheeling through wow. the air over the top of the runway. I just thought, wow, you know, I sure hope we make it home. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, that's a very, very good story. And, you know, it's interesting because I heard your name when I had David on the podcast and he mentioned, you know, you and his funny story. So, you know, that's a good one. I think it's, uh, uh, he got, they got the priorities right. Let's be fair. You know what I mean? You had to make sure you had the sustenance there and that they could actually laugh at your misfortune as well. So, yeah, it was, it was a good one. And you said, exactly. you said you had your backpack on your back. So that's actually the next question, which is, you know, what gear, do you use so what what do you shoot with 
Yeah. So, uh, gosh, since forever, you know, I was shooting Canon all the way back to the EOS three days. You didn't and then move transitioned away from into Canon. digital. You didn't move and, away from Canon. <laughs> and then, and then, right, about a year ago, right. I got hooked on the GFX system. And oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's just been fabulous. You know, uh, there's just something about those files coming off that larger sensor. Uh, the quality is just amazing. The color is spot on. There's extraordinary mm -hmm. detail. There's great dynamic range. Uh, I kind of like that old school uh, feel of shooting that kind of gear, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the mm -hmm. field. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I switched over to uh, to GFX system, not without a lot of thought and consideration, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, last fall. So I've shot with it. I don't know, about a half a dozen times uh, since then, but really just uh, fell in love with the system. So uh, love Canon, still, still a big fan of, of Canon. And of course we have uh, participants shooting all sorts of gear, you know, Sony, Nikon and, and other gear, but uh, man, I'm, I'm really, really happy uh, with the, with the GFX system. I, I had a hard time to be honest, shooting the, the 250 and, and that kind of wind. I don't do a lot of long lens photography. So there were a number mm -hmm. of shots that I'm, I'm pained, I'm pained to say that mm -hmm. didn't work out because I just didn't have a fast enough shutter speed, you know, with that high wind, you know, uh, yeah. the lens is yeah. still shaking. So you're trying to maybe figure out, well, Hey, should I switch on the lens IS or, or not? Or, you know, should I just, uh, keep that off and go with a faster shutter speed? So, I just, I don't have uh, a, a lot of experience shooting with a longer lens and uh, a number of those shots just didn't work out, but Hey, you, you learn something as you go, but I'm, I'm a big fan of that system and just really love those files. And what class do you use? Uh, I have the 23 uh, uh, prime, the 250 prime. And then I shot a lot with the 3264. I didn't take the 100, 200. So I only took just the three lenses in my bag, but okay. yeah, I shot a ton with that, uh, 32 to 64. And, uh, but yeah, all those lenses are just, uh, just amazing. I mean, the detail is just, yeah. it's just incredible. Absolutely. And then the last question I have here is what, um, shoes or what feet do you put those on? So what type of tripod do you use? Yeah. So, uh, forever, I guess I've been using, uh, Kirk ball heads, uh, that just seemed to be impossible to break. I've banged them on rocks and had them in sand and salt water and, and all those kinds of things. So Kirk ball heads and, and get so tripods. So, uh, I know a lot of people, uh, have very strong opinions, but, uh, you know, for me, those, those two pieces of gear have held up over time and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty rough, uh, on my gear. So I I've been maybe just fortunate that, that those, uh, two pieces of gear have worked really well for me over time. Yeah, you know what? Gear is to be used. It's not to be, you yep. know, wrapped up in bubble wrap. It's to be used, you know. And I, I've, I've a get so tripod myself, and I've I often said, you know, that they always say, don't meet your heroes, because I always had high expectations in relation to it. Now, you know, I often question why it's so expensive, but I've had situations because obviously in Ireland here we get similar winds to the, the Icelandic aspect, but it's constant coming off the Atlantic, and mm -hmm. I'm a seascape photographer in my heart, and I won't bring that near the sea because I don't want it to get it destroyed from uh, the salt. But if I'm at the coast, I will absolutely swear by it because there will be no movement in relation to it. And having solid feet is really, really important, as you say, in relation to the, it, the shake. It's key. It's it's probably the one thing that we see on workshop uh, the most that mm. that the group could could probably uh, improve their their gear on. You know, it's it, if you've got a great camera and great lenses, but then you don't have a ball head or tripod or an L bracket. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, it's tough. Yeah. You know, it's but, just tough from there. You, you put $10,000 on top of a Walmart 55.99. That ain't going to work out. You know, It's what I mean? not going to end well. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to end well. Um, and then the third question I have for you is our VSP. So it's a very solid product. It's a product you will not leave home without. You'd put your name to it if you could. What's yours? Yeah, so uh, I actually got three things that I never leave home without. One of them yeah. is this uh, Leatherman multi-tool. So knife blade, screwdrivers, pliers. Uh, I never leave home without that. Uh, software, Gaia GPS on the phone. Mm -hmm. You can download those maps from literally around the world. You can uh, look at tracks, uh, plan routes ahead of times, waypoints ahead of times. Gaia GPS, in my opinion, is worth its weight in gold. Mm -hmm. And if you if you've ever suffered mercilessly while traveling from a stomach virus or food poisoning event, mm -hmm. there's a prescription med called Zofran. That's at least a brand name here in the U.S. And I absolutely refuse to travel <laughs> without that medication in my mm. bag. It just takes one experience like that when yeah. you're traveling. Yeah. And Never I'll tell again. you what, that, that particular medication is just a miracle. It is a wonder. It just... For me, at least, my one experience of, of having uh, that travel a bug, uh, it just shut it off like a faucet. It was just, it was extraordinary. So I, I don't oh. leave home without those three things. Okay. Yeah, there are three good VSPs. So we'd allow you to have the three on this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, good. So, good. Um, yeah, that's all of my questions done, I suppose. All I have to do now is really kind of the, the wrap-ups, you know. So, like, what's next for you and where can people find more information on you? Yeah. So uh, what's next for me is, uh, you know, we're going to have a pretty full uh, fall, fall workshop schedule. Yeah. So fall Lucky of 2021. Yeah. And then uh, we'll kick off uh, 2022 with Lofoten, uh, a couple nice. of workshops in New Mexico, and then the Smokies Conference coming up in April of 2022. And uh, we're expecting to release our uh, second half of uh, 2022 uh, workshops uh, here in the next week or so. So we'll be Looking forward to going back to some of our favorite places in Colorado and, and Utah and, and, and back to Maine. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, over the next year, I'm looking forward to uh, doing some more speaking, getting back uh, on that uh, circuit and uh, looking forward to engaging in a little bit more uh, print sales. So nice. uh, got a lot to look forward to it, I think. Yeah. And actually, you know, something that comes out of that, actually, has Rob ever told you come to Ireland and take photographs in Ireland? No. Well, we actually did. We actually, huh. in 2019, I guess late summer, uh, we jumped in his uh, trusty Land Rover Defender and uh -huh. he actually drove us around Ireland. So uh, we circumnavigated clockwise Okay. and uh, we camped part of the way. Uh, we had just a complete blast. My, my wife was able to join us and nice. she had a wonderful time. And uh, man, I'm I'm really really eager to get back to Ireland. It just uh, man, just a beautiful landscape, uh, wonderful people, a wonderful culture. Had some great food. Uh, we got to meet Norm McCloskey and his gallery. And oh King yeah, Mary. Norm. That yeah. was that was a yeah. real treat, you yeah. know. So that was cool. And uh, yeah, we just had a wonderful time. And and we were actually planning to go back last year, but of course couldn't. And uh, hopefully we'll get back to Ireland in the next year or two. So I'm, I'm really eager to, to get back there. Well, if you do come back anyway, don't come in the summertime. Come in either September or come in March because you'll get some good storms that will come in then that will give you some good conditions on the uh, the wild Atlantic. And of course, you know, let me know, I suppose, when you're coming over, sure, and we'll hook up. It's been, you know, like a, uh, it's, it's a roller coaster ride when you think about 
Ireland because it's kind of under the radar. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like everybody goes to Iceland, everybody goes to Lofoten and such like that, you know, and the Faroes right. now. But we have quite a lot. I'm saying it all the time. I'm always kind of an advocate for Ireland. I mean, even, you know, <laughs> David, even when I was on his podcast as a guest, and can he call me an ambassador for Ireland? Because I do love my country. But I say that we've got so much to offer, except for two things. We don't have rainforests and we don't have deserts. That's it. Right. You know, but like right. when you when you want to have a wild uh, coastal area, yeah, the Wild Atlantic Way, as you know, is a, a phenomenal, phenomenal spot. Um, and where can people find more information on you? Yeah, absolutely. They can find uh, more information about me, me at my website, which is just simply dustydodridge.com. So it's a lot of these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, find me on the website and uh, email me or message me if there's anything that I can do for uh, folks and their photography. Well, Dusty, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting the man, the myth, the legend. I didn't even believe that you existed when, you know, when your name was mentioned. So I'm delighted to have you on. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I've loved hearing your story and I've loved your approach in relation to your craft as well. And like I say, look, if you're ever coming to Ireland, let me know and uh, yeah, we'll hook up. It's been a great. Thanks very much for coming on. Well, thank you very much, Darren. I really enjoyed it and really appreciate the opportunity to uh, be on the podcast with you. And uh, hopefully we can do it again down the road. Sure, man. Sure. So we have a phrase in Ireland, which is in Irish, it's Osquilga. It says bye for now. And I say at the every, every end of every podcast, so it's Slonga So from me to you, Slonga Hey, guys, if you dig what you're hearing, why don't you jump over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and don't forget to share with your friends. With all that done, we'll see you next week. And remember, keep shooting.